Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. It's December 15th. COVID concerns are rising. Inflation is the highest in decades, and credit spreads are ending the year near their highs of the year. Other than that, everything is great. Or is it? Uh, I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to our year-end BI Credit Podcast. And we have a wonderful twist on our traditional analyst-led format today with some of our BFFs from Bloomberg News to walk us through a little bit of what we can learn from the past and make an attempt at getting ahead of tomorrow's news today. James Crombie, one of our senior editors in charge of all things credit, and Lisa Lee, a Bloomberg reporter with a focus on credit, are our guest stars today. Uh, welcome, James and Lisa. Uh, James, why don't, we, why don't we get started with you? Um, and maybe this could be a little bit of big picture. Um, what we're seeing is that, as I said, IG spreads are tight, they're range-bound, high yields are low, uh, but they're ending their year, the year near their highs. You know, there's a ton of stories out there, whether it's China risk, inflation, issuance, corporate breakups. Maybe you can give us a little bit of sense from your perspective of what stood out in 2021 uh, and what does your crystal ball suggest about headlines we, we need to be wary about heading into 2022? I'll give you three words, Rob. Start making the t-shirts and baseball hats. Who dares wins? For an investor, this has been a great year to take credit risk. It looks like more of the same for 2022. Um, U.S. junk bonds are one of the top performing parts of fixed income with almost 4.5% total returns year to date. Uh, it's not as good as last year, which was over 7%, but it's a lot better than high grade, which is negative for the year. And it looks like it's headed for the first back-to-back -back losses in 40 years. Within high yield, the riskiest debt has done the best, with triple C's up more than 8%, while single and double B's underperformed slightly. So, you know, as I said, it really was a story of who dares wins in 2021. Um, and in addition, you know, credit quality improved, leverage fell. There were a lot of upgrades, including rising stars to high grade from high yield. And uh, the default rate dropped significantly. It's expected to end the year below half percent, um, and that's less than in 2007. So that means it's a new record low, according to Fitch, at least for this year. Um, and so also for, for, for an issuer, these are great times. Even though yields are up, they're still well below the five and 10-year averages. All in borrowing costs are very cheap. Companies know that. So issuance has surged this year. Um, but the investor cash just keeps pouring in from all types of buyer from across the globe. Every time there's been a correction, spreads widen a bit, buyers quickly pile back in. So, you know, overall, more demand than supply for credit means more risk taking to get yield in, in a world where government debt, for example, really isn't performing that well. It seems like a little bit of a Goldilocks scenario, though, right? That it felt like we were coming out of a pandemic. Rates remained extremely low. Uh, spreads had widened a lot the the prior year. Is it possible, though, that like things could completely change next year? That you know this sort of pandemic recovery uh, stops pretty quickly as it's extended. The world gets shut down again. Uh, liquidity becomes issues like, or, or or is the sense that you're getting from um, from from your reporting that the world just isn't really that worried about it? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There's, there's definitely plenty of risk out there, not least valuation. You know, everything got really bid up this year, so spreads aren't that far from record lows. Um, there's there's very little room for error at these prices. But you know, when you look at the economic outlook in the U.S., inflation, COVID variants spreading, as you said, the Fed tapering and tightening, perhaps moving too quickly or doing too much, it's really not all plain sailing. And then geopolitics are messy. There are midterms coming up in the U.S. There could be a spike in volatility, which tends to hurt risk assets. Um, and you know, moves down can be aggravated by a lack of liquidity. And then you look at the mess in China, going you know it, it, with the property sector, you know Evergrande and Kaiser and all that stuff. Um, but you know, on the flip side, there's the belief, at least among credit investors, and Lisa could probably speak to this um, a bit more, that you know if things really start getting too choppy, the Fed will jump back in and save the day again. You know, if, if central banks hadn't thrown the kitchen sink at COVID and all the shutdowns in 2020, we'd be in a radically different position today in credit markets. That genie is out of the bottle. So most portfolio managers sound pretty confident that spreads aren't going to widen too much. I would say that so if the last year has been very much focused on COVID risk, investors are now shifting to focus on interest rate risk and inflation risk. And so that's where their worries are contained around. And so the inflation sort of in two ways, how will inflation impact their assets? So if you're in corporate bonds, will the people be able to push through prices and maintain their robust margins? Um, and, but more than that, how will the Federal Reserve respond to inflation if it's persistent and their rate hike um, path. I think that's going to be the big focus in 2022. Well, the inflation risk plays out in multiple ways, right? One from a, a, a larger Fed perspective, and what does it mean about risk assets? But what about from sort of the bottoms up? I mean, um, today, th this you know, this morning, something near and dear to my heart, I'm reading more about a cream cheese shortage. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering from a, a supply chain perspective, like the world doesn't seem like we can get enough employees. We can't get enough product out to people. So, you know, how does, how does true price inflation affect uh, consumers and credit? And then how does what might be... Um, a steepening yield curve affect credit curves? Now, that's going to be the interesting thing that everyone's focused on. So far, if you look at corporate earnings, they've been great. And they have maintained their margins throughout the past bit of inflation, the last couple of quarters. But already, I'm talking to investors who are noticing sort of warning signals in some areas like quick restaurants where they're seeing starting to see margin compressions and difficulty hiring and people actually closing for a while because they're not enough workers reducing hours and though it's very small as yet as inflation persists and this um, worker shortage persists will they be able to keep their margins robust and I think the answer to that is going to be a mixed picture some companies will be able to and some companies won't some companies will be able to push prices through and other companies won't. And so you've already seen bond prices respond to this. So you have great earnings out, fabulous. Re um, retail sales like Neiman Marcus did fairly well, um, but Staples didn't. So that next year is going to be more about credit selection and making sure how our companies and how our investors really dealing with inflationary pressures. 
Gotcha. And, and, you know, James, it's interesting. You mentioned Evergrande, and it, it seems like, you know, there was this huge equity bubble in China, and, you know, some of the largest names really got hit very hard. You know, some of the names I cover, like, like Tencent and Alibaba, lost hundreds of billions of dollars of equity market cap. But but credit spreads for those names really didn't move that much. Do you think the, the U.S. just remains in its own sort of bubble that regardless of what's going on outside of U.S. borders, that U.S. credit quality is protected almost um, under all circumstances for the foreseeable future? I think so. I mean, there weren't that many direct channels of transmission between what was going on in China and into the um, U.S. either through directly through corporates and supply chains and whatever, but and also through banks, there wasn't really that much exposure. So, you know, that situation particularly was was kind of isolated. But I do think, you know, um, not only is it sort of insulated, but it also benefits to some extent from any volatility outside. You're getting a ton of um, of uh, bid from all over Asia, for example, for for U.S. corporate credit. Um, you know, insurance companies um, buying IG, for example, even even at razor thin spreads, um, because they can they can make a, a you know decent return on it in relative terms compared to what they can get locally. Um, and you know, it just it's just seen as a, a safe haven asset. So I do think that um, that it's not only is it is it um, kind of you know insulated and in a bubble, but it also benefits whenever there's a shakeout elsewhere. And I, I want to get a little deeper with with Lisa into some into some specific corporates and potential actions. But James, your 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 confidence in in the credit market's very high. But what about other sort of subsectors of credit? Uh, you know, leverage loan market or alternative credit investments. Do you have thoughts on those areas? They are absolute yeah, beneficiaries yeah. of this kind of, um, you know, bid for yield across the board that, you know, once bonds get too expensive, then people look elsewhere and um, try and get a return in, in leverage loans, which have drawn a very strong bid this year from the reflation trade. If you think rates are going up, you're going to want to buy floating rate as a hedge. And loans are up almost 5% this year on a total returns basis. That's about 50 basis points better than junk bonds. Um, there's a big test, though, coming from LIBOR transition early next year, and, and that's expected to be very choppy as, as everyone moves to a different benchmark for those you know, trillion dollars of, of loans. Um, and that will affect the issuance of CLOs, which are the big buyers of, of leveraged loans. A lot of their sales have been front-loaded into this year. Um, to, to kind of get ahead of that change. But also, you know, if the economy slows down or inflation cools and, and the rates don't go up as everyone expects, then leverage loans are quite exposed to to that um, shift because everyone's sort of buying and it's a very one-sided, you know, everybody's assuming that, that, that rates are going up and you should buy loans that could turn. But then, you know, the other, the other one that you mentioned, private debt, also very hot because of the yield. You sacrifice some liquidity, you get you get more of a pickup and those deals are getting massive you know multi-billion dollar uni tranche um, deals we're seeing now and increasingly attractive to investors because of the extra spread and then also structured products mbs abs cmbs also in demand because they offer better spread and, and there's not that much more risk in those although you know you could say and, and lisa probably has views on the property sector how that, that that's um a risk you want to get into right now yeah, and it's interesting. I wondered, Lisa, how this plays out a, a little bit from um, from from your perspective when it comes to if, if 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 rates are super low and spreads are super low and people are reaching for incremental yield, and you're seeing even you know 
large names like the GEs of the world um, getting smaller when it comes to debt perspective and, and buying back a lot of debt, whether it's GE or Verizon or AT&T or Dell, does that, does that open up a new world for LBOs and M&As since access to low-cost capital may, may never be better than where it is now because we really didn't see a ton of levered financing in 2021. You, you, you're getting hints that that might change next year? Private equity continues to raise money and they have incredible dry powder. And for corporates, there's a lot of change that COVID wrought. So corporate boards are buying companies to sort of deal with the sort of the secular change that they have to deal with post-COVID. So I think LBO and M&A activity should continue to be robust as long as the stock market isn't too volatile. I think everything is sort of cast in what what Dan Crombie is saying is that it's going to be a like a benign market. But if there's a lot of volatility, you might see pockets in which these markets sort of shudder for a little while. So you might have overall very strong issuance, robust returns, lots of cash coming in, but pockets of volatility. For instance, in, in I-grade bonds, duration risk, which is the sensitivity to interest rates, is at near record highs. We've put on so much debt since 2018. And that goes, and then if equity and I-grade bonds have a lot of volatility, even though high-yield bonds and leveraged loans don't have such duration risk, they can get pulled down just by being correlated. But beyond that, yeah, otherwise, I think um, floating rate asset class will shine and private equity will tap it to finance their dividends and for LBO deals. So you think there's going to be more lowered uh, M&A activity next year? Well, definitely. This has been a big year for M&A activity, and I see that continuing. There's just nothing really to stop the appetite for growth, and especially if there's lots of changes and there's still a lot of technological changes, I I would foresee more M&A coming up, Okay. which is good good for for the financing markets because the leveraged loan market and the CLO market especially really depend on private equity and corporates to do it to do their acquisitions and cap financing for these markets. Okay. And on a shifting topics just a little bit, you know, one thing that we can't get away from in credit is ESG investing. And I think it's becoming, uh, you know, a, a much bigger part of fundraising for companies. And, and we're seeing an explosion of, uh, of green bonds. You know, what, what are the trends that you're, you're seeing in that space? Uh, are, are we going to see a, a, a new wave of different issuers coming out and taking advantage of these markets? Are there still hurdles um, to, to ESG um, funding and investing? And what, what's sort of the tone there? I think definitely this is going to be a big debate within this fixed income market. The U.S. fixed income market lags Europe. And right now they pretty much have adopted the European model and are trying to get up to speed. Most of this is driven by their investors, pension funds, wanting to have areas that they can invest in that meet their values. And so investors are responding, but I think it still has a lot to be shaped out exactly how you determine ESG. There's a lot of criticism that a lot of these are just, you know, surface 
what's what's called greenwashing, not really real, but just a marketing ploy. So I think the market needs to like sort of push forward. And if there's a lot of volatility, I can see that getting a little bit into the back burner. But definitely, this is a long-term trend, and this is where the market is going. Also, the, you know, issuance has um, doubled this year. Uh, green bond issuance will probably double next year again. Um, sales of all kinds of debt in in that space, sustainability, sustainability linked, and so on, will also be growing very quickly. But you know, there's such a lot of cash piling up um, for that you know, ESG investment, and not enough to buy, um, which you know often generates risk. Um, and and it really is still the wild west in terms of you know what what exactly do these terms mean? What is sustainability? What is ESG? What is green? And when you see a company setting okay. targets and limits on, you know, what they can do and, and, and triggers and, and you know, d- you know the, the coupon adjusts if they hit a certain target, what is the target? Is it a real target? Is it something that's really super easy for them to get? Is it, you know, Rob Schiffman shows up for work wearing a, a suit, he gets a bonus sort of target. It, it doesn't it doesn't often make a lot of sense. So I think there's going to be, you know, some extra scrutiny next year. I'm wearing jeans and sneakers right now. You got a downgrade. <laughs> um, so, listen. There's a million things I could talk to you guys about, but if if we're if we're going to sort of wind it up, but let me put you on the spot a little bit, and, and and say if you had to come up with like you know maybe one or two things that could sort of put a monkey wrench into your guys' thoughts for next year, you know, what are the biggest risks that um, you think that could you know, turn these, these markets negative um, or on a company-specific basis, you know, it, what's the next Evergrande, you know, it, could, could you highlight anything that if if we had to, to really be scared of, and again, it's it obviously is not going to be consensus, but is there something out there that you, you think that people might not be thinking of right now? I think, you know, probably Lisa can speak to this better, but, but the policy yeah, error of, of the Fed is, yeah. is um, you know, that, that they're, they're moving too fast. Uh, to taper or to hike, um, and then that, you know, freaking everyone out. We, we, we've had some sort of tests of it. There wasn't the taper tension of um, 2018 in response. Um, so, you know, it seems like we've already been a little bit tested, but, but that seems to be, you know, domestically um, the biggest issue. And then, you know, as, as I said earlier, there's a ton of geopolitical and, um, you know, US political risk coming coming down that could shake things up. It's just, you know, I mean, I know I sound like a broken record here, but but every time we've seen a shakeup over the last two years, not least after the Fed weighed in with its bazooka, you've just seen credits, you know, just bounce back so strong that, um, you know, it's it's pretty, pretty, and, uh, you know, this could be famous last words, but it's it's pretty resilient. Um, and you, maybe you want to disagree, Lisa? No, I, I think what the credit market has enjoyed is what some people are calling the Powell put. You know, we had the Greenspan puts on equities for a very long time. And then Powell during COVID put a put on credit. And the biggest risk probably next year is if the market feels like that put can no longer, the Fed can no longer back up the market the way they have because inflation becomes such an overwhelming thing. So most people anticipate some of these really high CPI prints and the supply chain issues to taper off by the middle of, it, of next year. If it doesn't, we have really persistently high um, inflation, which has already become a political issue. And the Fed has to, to hike. And for get markets, we have to deal with price stability. And so the put's gone, then I think that's going to be a very different market than what we have described right now, which is pretty much benign with bits, bits of volatility. That may change. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you.
guys so much. I, I, I really want to thank James and Lisa for joining us. Thank our audience once again for listening to our BI Credit Chat podcast. You know, as always, if you need anything from our credit team or friends in news, feel free to reach out directly. You can always access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred G. Um, so for now, please stay happy and healthy. Have a great new year. Until next month, may your longs be tighter and your shorts wider. Bye-bye.